Green Lake City. Now, I don't normally call out members of the, the praise band, but did you all notice the young, beautiful, talented guitarist on stage this morning? I'm not talking about David Greer, by the way. So I checked the news this week, and I hear some things currently happening in our world. Three dozen people in Madagascar died of the plague, 200 infected. A bomber detonated himself outside of a religious shrine in Pakistan, killing 18 people. Wildfires are devastating Northern California. Going more local, a Peninsula High School student was killed in a car accident. The second Peninsula High student died this week. Going even more local, from last weekend's prayer requests, several people asked for prayers for their struggling marriages. A couple people asked for prayers for anxiety around their job situation. People asked for prayer for healing for their friends and family, one from advanced cancer, one from heroin addiction. No matter where you look in this world, you see suffering and evil. Natural disasters, terrorism, economic struggles, sickness, whether you're young or old, male or female, rich or poor, Christian or non-Christian, no matter your political beliefs or the color of your skin, we all come face to face with this question of suffering. This fall, we're going through the God questions. We're tackling some of the toughest questions about God and faith. And there's perhaps no tougher question than this. If God is all-powerful, and if God is all-knowing, and if God is all-loving, well, how do you reconcile that kind of God with the existence of suffering and evil? Because questions like, God, if God, is God real or is the Bible true? We wrestle with them here. But this question about suffering... We wrestle with it here, and we wrestle with it here. No wonder then that when a Barnapole asked, if you could ask God one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? The most common response was, well, why is there pain and suffering in this world? So in the time that we have together this morning, I'd like to frame this question about suffering, lay out the biblical facts, and provide you with a perspective on how we answer this question. And first, let me, let me say it will be important for us to, to set aside our own hurts, anger, or grievances as we tackle this question logically. Because all of us have likely experienced suffering in some way, and we wondered where God was amidst our pain, right? But it's impossible to, to, watch, it's impossible to watch a loved one die, or to see a child starving, or to lose everything in a random catastrophe, not feel strongly emotional about this question of suffering. But it's impossible to reason with emotion, no matter how natural and, and real that these emotions are. And so it's going to require us to separate what we feel from what we can think. So here's, here's the question. If God is all-powerful, that means God has the power to stop suffering. If God is all-knowing, that means God is aware of the suffering going on in his creation. And if God is all-loving, that means he cares about the suffering of his people. Well, how do we reconcile that kind of God with the existence of suffering and evil? This question raises several possibilities. And possibility one is that God is all-powerful and he's all-loving, but he's not all-knowing. He doesn't stop suffering because he doesn't know that's going on. This implies that God is blind. Right? Possibility two is that God is all-loving and he's all-knowing, but he's not all-powerful. God doesn't stop suffering and evil because he can't. This implies that God is weak. Possibility three is God is all-powerful and he is all-knowing, but he's not all-loving. God doesn't stop suffering because he doesn't care that we're suffering. This implies that God is heartless. 
Finally, there's the fourth possibility, right? God doesn't stop suffering because he doesn't exist. Because it's seemingly impossible to reconcile an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God with all the pain and tragedy and horrors of this world. It's a God question indeed. So let's examine these possibilities in turn. What does the Bible actually say about God and his character? Well, first, the Bible says God is all-powerful. The Bible is filled with displays of God's power. God spoke the universe into existence. God bent the forces of nature to his will when he, when he split part of the seas or he calmed the storms. He caused the sun to stand still in the sky. God supernaturally healed the sick and the blind and the lame. God even brought people back to life from death. The Bible says, for nothing will be impossible with God. God has the power to do anything. In Isaiah 44, God said, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. God has the power to create anything and everything. In Jeremiah 32, the Bible says, O Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God's all-powerful. Secondly, God is all-knowing. The Bible tells us there is no limit to God's knowledge. God knows the exact number of stars in the sky. He even knows them by name. God knows the number of hairs on our heads, the number of days in our lifespans. God knows the very secrets in the deepest parts of our heart. Psalm 147 declares, Great is our Lord and abundant in power, and His understanding is beyond measure. You can't even measure what God knows. Hebrews 4 tells us, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. God knows what is going on with everyone. Isaiah 40 asks, have you not heard? Have you known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. God is all-knowing. Third, the Bible says God is all-loving. Love is the word that we most associate with the Christian view of love, that God provides for us. God protects us. God comforts his people. God calls us the apple of his eye. God loved us so much that he sent his only son to die on a Roman cross. Psalm 136 declares, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. God's love is eternal. 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. God is the very definition of love. God is the very perfection and the embodiment of love. And of course, John 3, 16 reminds us, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but of everlasting life. So love the world. God is all loving. So if these things are true about God, and they are, then what are we again to make of the existence of suffering? Well, to answer this question, we need a quick logic lesson. Because most logical questions can be framed in what's called a syllogism. A syllogism is a logical structure where a conclusion is formed based on two facts or premises. Right, syllogisms help us trace the connection between our beliefs and our underlying assumptions. So here's an example. Fact. Everyone who's, a everyone who's Asian is a vegetarian. I am Asian. Conclusion, I'm a vegetarian. Now, if you know anything at all about me, you know that I hate vegetables. 
And not only do I hate vegetables, I actually believe that a delicious steak is one of the ways that a good God shows that He loves me, right? Amen, Amen to that, right? So how can the conclusion be so wrong? Well, the syllogism fails and the conclusion will be wrong if one of the underlying facts is wrong. In this particular case, the fact that all Asians are vegetarians is untrue. False fact equals false conclusion. Right? False fact, false conclusion. Let's examine the logic of the suffering question. Fact. An all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God would not allow suffering and evil to exist. Fact. Suffering and evil exist. Conclusion. God's not all-powerful. Or he's not all-knowing, or he's not all-loving, or he doesn't exist. Okay? Again, if one of the underlying facts is wrong, then the conclusion fails. And in this particular case, the conclusion fails because the false fact is that an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God would not allow suffering and evil to exist. This is problem one with the question of suffering. It assumes that there are no scenarios or reasons where God can exist in His power, wisdom, and love and let suffering and evil exist. It's a false assumption. There are, in fact, reasons why suffering and evil exists, and God allows that. So what are those reasons? First, suffering and evil exist because of a fallen creation. That is, suffering and evil are byproducts of a broken world. Originally, God created a perfect creation for His people. End of Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. That phrase, very good, doesn't fully capture the meaning of the Hebrew there. A better translation would be, exceedingly excellent. God looked at everything He had made, and it was exceedingly excellent. It was perfect. But then... Sin entered the equation. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned by, obeying, by disobeying God's commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that sin, that sin broke not only Adam's and Eve's relationship with God, it actually broke creation. It broke the physical world in which we live. Genesis 3.17 tells us the ground was cursed as a consequence of Adam's and Eve's sin. That the ground would... Was, would bring about thorns and thistles. Essentially, the earth was now working against people rather than perfectly supporting them. Romans 8 puts it this way, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The Bible says creation was subjected to futility because of him who subjected it. That means creation was broken because of the actions of someone else. In this case, Adam and Eve. The Bible says that, that creation is held in bondage to corruption or decay. Corrupt, it's, it's rotting. The Bible says creation is groaning as if it's in pain. That very creation is suffering. That's why when the book of Revelation discusses end times, it says that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because this one is broken and needs to be remade. The brokenness of our world is reflected in some of the suffering that we see around us. For example, every destructive force of nature that inflicts suffering, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, tsunamis, all of these forces of nature that devastate, they're aspects of a world that is broken by sin. As another example, areas of the world that are inhospitable, difficult to live in, 
Areas where the, were, where the earth that was created to support life now works against it, like sub-Saharan Africa, the tundras of Siberia. But these are aspects of a world that is broken by sin. This kind of suffering, it doesn't come from a good God, no. Some instances of suffering are consequences from a world broken by sin. Second, secondly, suffering and evil exist because of Satan, the devil. Satan is real, and he's actively working against God in his kingdom. It was Satan who initiated the fall by asking Eve about that fruit. And Satan's work against God in his kingdom, it didn't stop in Genesis 3. No, it continues to this very day. Some of the suffering and evil that exists in the world exists because of Satan. According to recent polls, while 89% of Americans profess some belief in the conception of God, only 57% believe in any sort of idea of the devil. Beloved, this world is very much deceived. As French poet Charles Baudelaire noted, the finest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he does not exist. The Bible says Satan is very real, that he is an enemy of God and God's people, and that he is actively working in the goings-on of this world. John chapter 12, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. That same phrase is used for Satan in 2 Corinthians 4. It's implying that Satan is actively at work in the world around us. Ephesians chapter 6 refers to Satan and his minions as the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, the Bible is implying that the darkness and evil in this world right now is due to the work of Satan. Luke chapter 13, Jesus healed a woman who had been afflicted by a physical disability for 18 years. And when, when Jesus was criticized for healing this woman on the Sabbath, this is what Jesus responded. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus' statement implied that Satan was the cause of her illness, that he has the power to cause sickness and disease. 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul wrote, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul was warning the church at Corinth, to beware of Satan's attempts to draw them away from God. Beloved, the Bible paints this very clear picture that some of the suffering and evil that, that, we, that exists in this world can be attributed to our great enemy, Satan. Our natural instinct is to, to blame God when we think about suffering, but we ought to be careful where we cast that blame. Some suffering comes from Satan. Third, suffering and evil exist because God uses them to shape our character and to draw people closer to himself. You see, the second problem with the question of suffering is this. The question assumes that the world exists for our happiness. If this was your, your starting point, right? That the world is perfect only if, if you're happy, if there's no suffering, then sure, I can see why you have issues with God. People believe that the chief purpose of this world's existence is our complete and constant happiness. But what if the truth is that this world exists for some other purpose? In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Happiness, Pastor Tim Keller phrased the question this way, is the highest good that we become comfortable and trouble-free or that we become spiritual and morally great? If our lives do not go as we have planned, it is natural to question the wisdom of God. But our indignation is greatly magnified by an unexamined premise that God, if he exists, exists to make us happy as we define happiness. Right? 
Some of our unhappiness when we wrestle with God about this question of suffering, it's this, really this tension between what we think the world ought to be, which is to provide us uninterrupted happiness and comfort, and what the world is actually meant to be, which is to increase our holiness and Christ-likeness and to draw us closer to God. That's the real purpose. Moreover, underlying this tension between our happiness and our holiness is problem number three with the question of suffering. It assumes that not only that the world exists to make us happy, but it assumes that we deserve happiness and don't deserve any suffering. There's a scene in the movie Wonder Woman where several men are toasting before, before drinking, and the toast goes, may we get what we want, may we get what we need, but may we never get what we deserve. If we're honest with ourselves, this is our thought process. I'm a good person. So why, does bad, why do bad things happen to good people? But that's our question. And here's what we need to understand, beloved. You and I, we're not good people. You and I, we're not good in any way. The Bible says this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. What all people deserve, what you and I deserve, is death and hell. That's what we deserve. That's hard to hear. That's hard to hear, but it's true. Friends, any amount of suffering in our lives is actually deserved It's all the good in our lives that we don't deserve. Our fundamental issue is that we have this human-centered view of the universe. We think that God and the universe exist to make us happy. But an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving God, He does not exist to serve our needs. In fact, in His all-lovingness, God understands that people will only find true, lasting, deep, real happiness only if they become more like Him and only if they know Him more and more. And it is to accomplish this end of shaping the holiness of His people and drawing them closer to Himself that God uses the suffering and evil that exists in this world. Suffering grows our character. It teaches us virtues like contentment and patience. Suffering causes us to depend on God and to lean into Him. The existence of evil in this world, it causes us to yearn for true justice. It points us to a coming higher judgment, and it puts in us a desire for holy reckoning to come. Former atheist-turned-Christian Lee Strobel noted it this way, God can use suffering to strengthen our commitment to Him, to force us to depend on grace, to bind us together with each other, to stretch our hope, to cause us to know Christ better and deeper, to make us long for truth, to lead us to repentance from sin, to teach us to give thanks in times of sorrow, to increase our faith, to strengthen our character, and on and on and on. So many reasons why there's suffering. The great Charles Spurgeon put it this way, there is no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trial. It's how we learn and grow. God grows us more like Him and closer to Him through suffering and trial. Roman tells us we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Fourth, suffering and evil exist because people exist. People are often the cause of each other's suffering. For God to eliminate suffering and evil in this world, it would entail the elimination of people. 
Some of the suffering and evil that we experience in our lives are the fruit and consequences of the decisions made by other people. When I was 19 years old, I lost a very close friend of mine when he was killed by a drunk driver. And my immediate reaction was to react in anger towards God. Right? That he was in control, so this was on him. That's what my hurting heart told my hurting mind. In truth, it was the poor decision-making of one driver that was to blame, not God. Not God. There are so many examples of how we impact other people by the choices that we make. Right? When we get angry, we take out that anger in other people so they suffer. When we choose to be selfish, we deprive other people, they suffer. When we choose not to forgive, when we bear grudges, we allow relationships to suffer and so on. We need only merely look throughout history and we can clearly trace some of the greatest suffering and evil to ever befall the world to the decisions made by broken people and broken ideologies. World wars, genocides, oppression, these are man-made problems. These are man-made evils, not divine ones. So we may criticize God for not eliminating suffering and evil, but logically, that means we're criticizing Him for not wiping out the human race. In Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Described then, it describes now. And the solution at that time to eliminate evil was the destruction of mankind through a global flood. It was only by God's grace and mercy that creation was preserved through Noah and the ark. The Bible says this about our heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's our heart. The Bible says of people, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. None. The fact that God has not yet done something about suffering and evil does not mean that he will not one day do so. Because what we mistake as God being blind, weak, or heartless towards the question of suffering is in fact not blindness, not weakness, not heartlessness. It's patient mercy. A day is coming where God's perfect justice will indeed eliminate suffering and evil. But until that day, God is showing divine patience toward people. The Bible said the heavens and earth that now exist, they're stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness. Nobody's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It is patience that stays God's hand. Fifth, suffering and evil exist to glorify God. Now, this may sound counterintuitive, right? Suffering and evil often draw people away from God, not glorify Him. But all things glorify God, even the terrible things. John chapter 9, the Bible tells about a man who had been blind since birth. And the religious leaders at that time, the Pharisees, they too were wrestling with this question of how to reconcile the existence of suffering with what that said about God. And so they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born, born blind? The Pharisees assumed that God was behind the man's disability. And Jesus responded, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Right, this situation wasn't caused by sin. This was so that God could work in the situation for his glory. Just two chapters later, my favorite chapter and story in the Bible, John chapter 11, Jesus comes to Bethany to visit his close friends, Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus had just died. And the situation is so, so awful, it brings the Lord Jesus to tears. 
And Jesus is standing in front of the tomb of his close friend who had just died, and he tells him to move the stone away from the tomb's entrance. And the people are like, but he's dead. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This awful situation, the death of a loved one, well, this awful situation existed because Jesus said it would bring glory to God. Genesis chapters 37 to 46 tell about the life of Joseph. Out of jealousy, his brothers sold him into slavery. He was separated from his family for over 20 years. He was falsely accused of a crime and thrown into prison in Egypt. But then he's put into a position where he's able to save his family and establish the nation of Israel. And Joseph told his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. The family separation, the betrayal, the false accusation, the prison sentence, all of that evil in that situation was ultimately part of God's plan for good, for His glory. You see, God is the kind of God who likes to show Himself strong in awful situations. This world, it doesn't exist for our happiness. This world, suffering and all, exists for God's glory alone. Lastly, suffering and evil exist for reasons we don't have the privilege or capacity of understanding. You know, I focus on these five reasons. There are actually other reasons for the existence of suffering and evil that I didn't cover. Our free will is one reason. God's divine justice is another. They're actually more fully covered in the God questions and the, the chapters that you're reading for small groups this week. In addition, I'd recommend encourage you to read the book uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller for a more expansive look at how we address this question of suffering, Right? Because some of you have a natural follow-up question you might be wrestling with, which is, yeah, sure, some of these reasons explain why suffering and evil exist, but couldn't God still intervene and stop the suffering and evil? And their answer to that question lies in how God deals and treats our free will, which we don't have time to get into today, but it's covered again in the book. But even if we had more time to cover additional reasons why suffering and evil exist, at the end of the day, the surest thing that I can tell you about God is this. None of us can or ever will fully and completely understand him. In the book of Isaiah, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Often, God's reasons are beyond our ability to comprehend. And we may not like it, but there are some things that happen in this world because God just simply willed those things to happen for reasons we can't or won't understand. And it leads me to highlight problem number four with the question of suffering. At its core, this question is not about God's existence. It's not about God's character. It's about God's sovereignty. This question assumes that people can or should dictate a sovereign God's actions. You see, you and I want to be in control. And when something happens that we don't like or we don't understand... We're essentially stating, if I were God, this is how I would do things. This is how I would run the world. And God, you can't be real, because if you were real, you would do exactly as I think you ought to do. That's what the question boils down to. Because we don't understand him or his ways, because God is acting in ways that go against how we want him to act, we choose either to criticize his character or to deny his existence. At the end of the book of Job, God rebuked Job and his friends for their responses to why Job was suffering. And God's response to Job was not, oh, I'm sorry, Job. Here's why I did this so that you can fully understand all of my decision-making. 
That's not how God responded to Job. God's response to Job was essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, where were you when I sovereignly created this and supernaturally created this world? Are you even able to understand and comprehend how I supernaturally maintain its existence? Who are you to question me or question the things that happen in this world, good or bad? You are not God. And to Job's credit, Job confessed and repentant, repented, and this is what he said, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job admitted that he had no basis to question God because he was dealing with things well beyond his ability to comprehend. Ultimately, that is the, the truth about suffering, that it's hard and it's awful. And maybe it happened for one of the reasons we talked about today, but maybe it didn't. And we have to be content with the fact that he is God and we are not. Ultimately, the question of suffering, it's not a logic issue at all. It's a heart issue. Truth. Now, maybe these reasons were enough to answer your God question about suffering, but I actually have one final thought to share. It's this. The good news of the gospel is that all the suffering and evil in this world is going to be redeemed by the resurrection. See, the atheist asks this question about suffering as if he has a better answer. The atheist's position is what? God can't exist because I don't understand why suffering and evil exist. Okay. So in the atheist worldview, there is no God. And guess what? Suffering and evil still exist. Now what? Now what? Because the atheist worldview has no framework for understanding suffering and evil either. For the atheist, life is a matter of random chance without God. This means that the random life that we have, once it ends, there's no hope of eternity, no hope of redemption, nothing left. Which means that all of the suffering we experience in our lives, just bad luck. For the atheist dealing with this question of suffering, it's life stinks, then you die, the end. That's a better worldview? An honest atheist would have to admit that a worldview without an eternal perspective, without hope for redemption, is ultimately hopeless and full of despair. But the Christian worldview, but in the Christian worldview, all this can make sense. It's only in the Christian worldview where we have purpose and meaning, even for suffering. Because the Christian believes that all of the trials in our lives one day will be redeemed by the resurrection. You see, the gospel message is that we began in perfection, and we broke that perfection with sin, and that the consequences of that sin is suffering and evil and death. But that God, out of great love for us, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem this brokenness through His death and resurrection. And if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we will have life everlasting. And all of this will be made brand new. That's the gospel. That in Jesus, we have the hope that all this gets better, so much better. And in comparison to the future joy and happiness that we will experience, all this temporary pain and suffering, it's nothing. The Bible says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, well, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. Where the atheist perspective is, life stinks, then you die. The Christian perspective is, life is sometimes hard, sometimes full of suffering, and then you die. But then because of the saving power of Jesus Christ, all the hardness and pain and suffering disappears and we will see the glory of eternity. Pastor Tim Keller put it this way, Christianity offers not merely a consolation, 
but also a restoration. Why does an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God allow suffering and evil? Oh, I can give you a few reasons. But I'd rather rephrase the question completely and ask it this way. How does an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God deal with suffering and evil? Answer, through Jesus Christ, he redeems and restores everything. Everything. The Bible says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with his, his people, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more, neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Behold, I am making all things new, brand new. That's the Christian hope and the real answer to suffering and evil, that it is all wiped away one day because of Jesus Christ. Amen. So where do we go from here? Three next steps. First, I will give up my anger, hurt, bitterness, or resentment. As I noted when we began, that this question of suffering hits us here and it hits us here. And in here is where we sometimes store up some measure of anger or resentment towards God because of the suffering in our lives. Beloved, these negative feelings, they only separate us from the only one who can deal with these wounds. If you're harboring any such negative feelings toward God, I encourage you to bring them before him, confess them, and ask for him to provide the same kind of peace and understanding that allowed Job to humbly repent. As Christians, we're called to suffer well, to hold on to our hope, to hold on to our joy, even in the midst of suffering and trial, because we know that God has not deserted us, in fact, God might be using whatever we're going through to draw us closer to him. C.S. Lewis put it this way, I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Book of James tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that te the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Second, I will meet the suffering of others with the gospel. The best reaction to suffering and evil is responding with the gospel. One of the ways that we can reflect an understanding of the redemption that we have in Jesus is by showing love to those who are suffering. This means that when we as Christians encounter people who are suffering, we should resist the urge to be simplistic and just say, don't worry, God has a plan, or God will turn this around. Those things will be absolutely true, but we don't need to respond to those who are suffering with a sermon. No, those who are suffering need a listening ear, someone to weep alongside with, someone to care. Followers of Jesus, the church, were to be the hands and feet of Christ. So in times of suffering and evil, we're to show the world such acts of service and generosity and kindness and love to such an unnatural degree that the world takes notice. I'm so proud of how this church responded to the recent hurricanes that damaged Texas and Puerto Rico. We collected over $16,000 towards relief efforts in just two weekends, right? Praise God. We saw suffering and we responded with generosity, gospel. You see a, a coworker or a neighbor or family member grieving, we'll provide them a listening ear and comfort and a meal, gospel. You see your community in need, serve at the food bank, gospel. I'm paraphrasing a quote that I've seen several pastors use, but it's this. 
live a life that demands explanation, and that explanation is Jesus. Let us respond to suffering with the gospel. Lastly, I will no longer deny or despair. I will place my hope in Jesus Christ. Friend, if you came today really wrestling with why the world is the way it is, or wrestling with your own hurts and suffering, I hope I've given you enough reason to see that suffering is no critique of God or His character. In fact, only in Jesus do we understand God's true plans for suffering and see its redemption in the end. You can turn away from denial and despair by turning to Jesus Christ. Horatio Spafford was a successful businessman in Chicago with a wife, Anna, and five children. But in 1871, their young son died from pneumonia. Later that same year, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed most of their business. Just two years later, on the French ocean liner, the Ville du Havre was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe with 313 passengers on board, among them Anna Spafford and their four daughters. Mr. Spafford was forced to stay in Chicago to help resolve an unexpected business problem. Well, the Ville du Havre collided with the Scottish barge. Within 12 minutes, the ship sank, killing 226 passengers, including all four Spafford children. Anna was somehow rescued, and nine days later in Wales, she wired her husband a message which read, Saved alone. What shall I do? Horatio booked passage on the next available ship to join his grieving wife, and at one point during the the trip, the captain called Horatio to his cabin and told him that they were now over the spot which the ship had sunk and his children had drowned. Can you imagine the emotional devastation that Horatio was experiencing? Can you imagine And yet it was on this very same trip that Horatio Spafford penned the lyrics to one of the great hymns of the faith. Spafford wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Amidst the deepest of suffering and the deepest of grief, it was Horatio's faith that helped him to focus on the God who loved him rather than to fixate on despair. Helped Horatio to focus on Jesus who will one day set this all right. That's the great hope of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We who love Jesus, we still struggle with the existence of suffering and evil. But we know that he who was able to overcome death itself will one day overcome all these things too. We don't despair. We hope because we know that all of this, all of this brokenness, all of this suffering, all this pain, all this evil, all this gets one day remade brand new. Brand new. And on that day, in our eternal home, we will finally see that all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God face-to-face and be separated from suffering and evil forever and ever and ever. Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, you will. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Take heart, my friends. It is well with us, because Jesus has overcome this world. Let's pray. Father, it is... We thank you for the truth of your word that you are all-powerful and all-loving and all-knowing, that you loved us so much and that in your power, your wisdom, and love that you sent Jesus Christ to redeem our lives, to redeem our suffering. 
Thank you that in Christ and in Christ alone, suffering and evil will one day be eternally vanquished once and for all. Lord, help us to share this great hope that we have with those around us, especially any that might be dealing with hard things. Help us be your hands and feet to a suffering world. Lord, for those that are seeking answers to questions of faith, questions about who you are, I ask that you would reveal yourself to them. I pray that they would be able to find that every answer that they have, that every question they have, they would find their answer in you and you alone. I ask that you would tug upon their hearts so that they would submit their lives to you. Thank you, Lord, that it is well with our souls because of you, that you have overcome all things for us. In the name of Christ our King, amen.